Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Right. So let me just paint a quick picture here so that you can kind of see this in, in your mind as, as everyone's listening. I want you to think of a big plus mark. Okay. And the big plus mark has four points, right? On the horizontal line, we have on one side... We have distraction on the put it put that on the left hand side, like the west point of this plus mark. And the opposite of distraction, what goes on the east side, the other side of this horizontal line, is not focus, right? The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Hmm. Traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. Now you'll notice that both words end in the same five letters. A-C-T-I-O-N, which spells action. Traction and distraction both end in action, reminding us that traction and distraction, these are not things that happen to us, right? Many people think, oh, I got distracted. It happened to me. No. Distraction is an action that you took that pulled you away from what you wanted to do. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction traction how you did how you did that was the voice of near and his book came out relatively uh, close to mine really i think it's about a week after mine came out and you hear that in an interview but today's topic is really one that i stress about often how to live an intentional life how to make sure you are aware of the things that are distracting you and hey how to own that accountability how to really say hey I know this is distracting me, but this is what I can do about that. Nier is, is, is an expert in the field of productivity, but he's also one who has a very actionable step. In fact, he has this grid system that allows you to understand what you can do to identify you know, what your triggers are and how you can make sure that these habits or routines become things that you become more aware of and therefore institute into your life. It's a very wide range of conversation, but a lot of the focus at, towards the end or towards the middle rather ends up becoming on creating actionable steps. I think this is one that will be actionable for everyone, especially as we're going to the second half of the year or the latter half of the year. We're going to start wondering how to make sure that you finish strong, but also stay consistent with all the goals. Some of you set goals in the beginning of the year, and some of you might have slacked off on those goals. But now, if you want to essentially set up your habits, your body goals, your financial goals, your your educational goals, this is a good episode and book, frankly, for you to read to make sure that you become indistractable. Once again, you can get his book. I'll put that in the show notes, and you can get his resources. That'll mean the show notes. But thank you as well 
for continuing to support Use Your Difference to Make a Difference, which is my book. Uh, you know, I, I say it often, you know, and I honestly don't get tired of this. I can't thank you enough for the support. I've been going on several book tours and I've been meeting some of you all who listen to the podcast and just the support that you have with this is incredible. So thank you. I'm truly humbled and enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads and today's guest is Nir Eyal, the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. He also used to teach at Stanford Graduate School of Business and is a design expert with his forthcoming book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Interesting fact, his book is coming out a week after mine, so it's, it's very, uh, September is a big release month for a lot of authors. His book is provide an urgent advice on how to become indistractable. He loves to discuss what it takes to become a global leader. So this will be very relevant in today's podcast. But some of the things that we're going to be discussing are why technology is not hijacking your brain and why distraction at work is a symptom of workplace dysfunction. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, bless your mind. We took a few tries of that intro, but uh, <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> we're finally here. So, one of the first things that I, I, I noticed when I was researching you is your background. You know, uh, you had talked about how you had researched a lot of um, people and essentially productivity and why we become distracted in life. But there's something that you said that struck me. You said that it has nothing to do with the the products that we that we use. That has nothing to do with our phones. I do definitely say that it's not your phones, mm -hmm. uh, that your phone is part of the uh, proximal cause, not the root cause of the problem. We, we love to blame stuff when we get off track. And so the latest boogeyman is tech gadgets, that Facebook is hijacking your brain, the technology is doing it to you. And I think that's just pure nonsense. That certainly the technology plays a role, but it's not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem is that we don't know how to manage discomfort. It's that we are using these distractions as emotional pacification. And unless we understand the root causes of why we get distracted, we will always get distracted by something. Well, then how can we discover what the root causes are? Because it's, you know, it's one thing to say technology is not hijacking the brain, but now when you take that away, you really take something that people have, have really defined as a cause. So how can we then have that self-awareness to really reflect on what could be causing our distractions? Yeah, that's a problem, right? Oh my yeah. God, I have to take personal responsibility and I can't blame big corporations for my problems? What? <laughs> uh, and, and this is what happens in every generation. There's this moral panic. I mean, this happens today with social media and cell phones. In my generation, when I was a kid, it was video games. Super Mario Brothers were terrible. Before that, it was rap music before that it was heavy metal music and before that it was television before that it was the radio and the novel and the comic book i mean the list goes on and on and on every generation people freak out and blame something for hijacking their brains and uh as as opposed to looking deeper inside for why they do things they don't want to do and so i started to write this book uh, thinking that technology was the problem i mean this is the popular narrative that we've been hearing is that you know technology is melting our brains and making us do things we don't necessarily want to do and one, I discovered that the academic literature doesn't say this at all. Uh, two, I'm an industry insider who helps build habit-forming products for good. And so I use the latest and greatest techniques to help people use technology to build healthy habits like going to the gym and saving money, you know, these apps that can help you uh, help our kids uh, enjoy school and, you know, all of these great things we can do technology. And I kind of got pissed off that technology was always this boogeyman. 
Uh, so I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe it is a technology doing it to us. So it turns out that the academic literature just doesn't support it. And furthermore, when we really dive into it, what I noticed was that distraction is much, much deeper and much, much broader than just technology. But, I mean, think about it, right? Let's say tomorrow Mark Zuckerberg says, okay, you know what, guys? I'm tired of this. Uh, I'm shutting down Facebook, okay? I've made my billions of dollars. I'm going to go live in Tahiti for a little bit and take it easy. Facebook is turned off. Instagram is turned off. With WhatsApp is turned off. Do we really think that people would all of a sudden no longer be distracted? Like, are we going to go back? Uh, are we going to just all start reading Shakespeare and Chaucer in our free time? Of course not. People mm -hmm. will gossip. They'll watch the news. They'll watch soap operas. They'll do all the stuff that we have always done to distract ourselves. Socrates and Aristotle talked about distraction 2,500 years ago. They called it akrasia. So 2,500 years ago, people were literally, literally complaining about how distracting the world is these days. So it's not a new problem. And so we need to tackle it from the root. And if we don't get to the root, we'll always find something to distract ourselves. And the root cause is this uncomfortable emotional state that we don't know how to deal with, whether it's boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty. And so the answer to answer your question is that we only have two choices. Hmm. We can either become the kind of person who lets our attention and our lives be manipulated by other people, or we can become indistractable. We can become the kind of people who live with personal integrity. Personal integrity is about doing what you say you're going to do. It is the macro skill of the century. It is the mother of all skills in this day and age. Because the truth is, while distraction has been with us for a very, very long time, it is easier today to get, to get distracted than ever. I mean, these companies know what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. Okay. And so if you are not prepared, if you do not know how to become indistractable, if you are not on the path to doing what it is you say you're going to do, chances are they're going to get you. They're going to get you. They're going to get your kids. They're going to get your colleagues. And so it behooves us, instead of you know complaining to these tech companies and just waiting around for them to change, which ain't going to happen, or waiting for regulators to do something about it, let's do something ourselves, right? We can do something right now. Uh, and it's actually not even that hard to become indistractable. You know, speaking of becoming indistractable, I did, I, I was, you know, reading a lot and you said, right, you need to master your internal triggers, mm -hmm. you need to prevent distraction with pacts and make time for traction. Like those oh, are what you, those, yeah. those are the four steps. Exactly. <laughs> those are the four steps. So I, I wouldn't, I mean, I don't want you to give the book away, but I would love, no, okay. I love if you could touch on those because uh, I'm particularly intrigued by uh, the trigger part because I, I, I find that that's a big part of self-awareness. Just understanding your triggers, otherwise you become conditioned and you're just reactive. Huge. So, yeah, I'm very, very curious as to how these these four pillars uh, play a role into making you indistractable. Right. So let me just paint a quick picture here so that you can kind of see this in, in your mind as, as everyone's listening. I want you to think of a big plus mark, okay? And the big plus mark has four points, right? On the horizontal line, we have on one side, we have distraction on the, put it, put that on the left-hand side, like the West point of this plus mark and the opposite of distraction, what goes on the East side, the other side of this horizontal line is not focus, right? The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Hmm. Traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. Now you'll notice that both words end in the same five letters. A-C-T-I-O-N, which spells action. Traction and distraction both end in action, reminding us that traction and distraction, these are not things that happen to us, right? Many people think, oh, I got distracted. It happened to me. No, 
Distraction is an action that you took that pulled you away from what you wanted to do. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction. Okay, so now you've got east and west on this horizontal axis, right? Traction right. on the right, distraction on the left. Now you've got two arrows, the, the vertical line. I want you to imagine two arrows pointing to the center. And these represent the two things that move you towards either traction or distraction. All of our actions are either traction or distraction. The two things that move you towards traction and distraction are either external triggers or internal triggers. External triggers are, any, are is anything in our environment that tells us what to do, that pulls us, that prompts us to either traction or distraction. So it's most people think of you know the pings, dings, and rings and things uh, from our phones, from our environments that prompt us to either traction or distraction. So if an external trigger is an alarm that says, okay, time to get out of bed and go work out, and that's what you plan to do with your time, well, now that external trigger led you to traction. But if the external trigger, you know, if you're sitting with your family, as, or as I was when I had this revelation that, that prompted me to write this book, I was sitting with my daughter, and we had this beautiful moment, this father-daughter time, and I got this notification on my phone, and uh, I was, you know, using my phone as opposed to being present with someone I love very much, well, now that led me towards distraction. So those are external triggers. But the most common source of distraction are in fact the internal triggers. The internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states. And so we have to back up even a question further to really start from first principles to not only ask why do we get distracted, why don't we do what it is we say we're going to do, but why do we do anything? What's the root of motivation? Turns out that all motivation comes from one place. Most people, if you said, okay, what, you know, why, what, what, what motivates people? they'll give you some version of carrots and sticks, right? Pleasure and pain. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. The problem is it's wrong, it's not true. We do not do things for the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but rather all motivation is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort. It's all pain, all the way down. In fact, even the desire for a pleasurable sensation is in fact uncomfortable. Wanting, craving, desire, longing. There's a reason we say love hurts. All of these things are psychologically destabilizing. And so everything we do, we do to escape some form of discomfort. So we can utilize that discomfort to either prompt us to traction or distraction, to things that are helpful or hurtful. And we need to start there. That has to be the first step, is to recognize this icky sticky truth that when we get distracted, it's because we are using devices, tools, television, uh, whatever it is that we are using as psychological pacification. Just like a baby sucks on a, on a pacifier, we right. use our phones, we use booze, we use drugs, we use for some people, you know, all sorts of things for psychological escape. And so if all behaviors prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. Hmm. management. This is what other you know, productivity books don't tell you. <laughs> that you can use every productivity uh, technique in the book, in every book, and they won't work unless you have dealt with what sensations, what uncomfortable urges you're looking to escape and you don't have the tools to deal with 
today that cause you to, to look for these unhelpful and unhealthy distractions? That's a very fascinating way to look at it. Time management is pain management. Uh, essentially, our brain wants to prote- uh, protect us uh, a lot of times. And I think it's interesting. I never thought about the the fact that the root word <laughs> is, you know, of distraction is traction. And, and then there is the action word in there. Um, and so I, I keep visualizing this compass of yours or this four, this uh, as four, four directional grid. So, huh, very interesting. So you say it's pain mm-hmm. management then, and that really helps you understand, uh, triggers, but you're saying the habits of the in- internal, uh, sorry, of the indistractables really has to do with internal triggers versus external triggers, right? That's, that's the distinction between the triggers that you're talking about. Well, we have to use all four techniques. So the four techniques, if you, if you work clockwise, uh, on these four points, right, on this big plus mark that we've made uh, in the, you know, the north point is master internal triggers. That's right. step one. Step two is to make time for traction. Step three is to hack back the external triggers. And step four is to prevent distraction with packs. So it's not, there's no, there's no silver bullet here, or magic bullet. There's no one answer. It's a confluence or it's a, uh, it's, it's a use of various techniques in the appropriate way and in the appropriate time to make sure that we don't get distracted, that we do more traction and that we understand how to not get distracted in the future. So it's really about using all these four techniques in the right way. Gotcha. Okay. So then we go into this, this idea of choosing your life and controlling your impulsiveness, you know? So I I mentioned briefly earlier about how I think we, we become very reactive. I actually think we live in a very conditioned world as opposed to being an intentional world, right? And now you, when you, when people start their days, they're not going about saying, hey, this is what I want to do with the day, that you sort of let the day take control of them, at least in my experience. And so it, how do you actually choose your life in a, in, a, in a world where people don't feel like they have a choice? Yeah, so I think it starts with the fact that, you know, the one thing that we can control is how we spend our time, right? It doesn't matter what socioeconomic background. I mean, unless unless you're in, in prison, you know, actually in prison, and even there you have some control over your time because you have a lot of excess time on your hands. How you spend your time should be spent according to your values, not according to someone else's values. And I, frankly, I don't care what your values are. My goal is to help you live out whatever values are important to you. So many of us you know, we talk a good game. If you say, well, what's important to you in life? Oh, my family, my friends, my health, that's what's important to you. Mm. But if I asked you, okay, show me where those things are manifested on your calendar. Well, I don't know, <laughs> right? right? So right. in the book, I talk about this interview, this case study with a, a friend of mine who was constantly distracted. Oh my God, the world is so distracted these days. I can't get anything done, you know, between what's happening in the news and my kids and my boss and this and that. So many things are distracted. And I said, wow, that's that's really tough. You know, can can I see what you got distracted from? Can I see your calendar? And she took out her calendar on her phone, you know, the calendar app, and she showed it to me, and it was blank. There's nothing on it, <laughs> like a dentist appointment maybe. So here's the thing. We have no right to call something a distraction unless we know what it distracted us from. We have to allocate our time or someone else will allocate it for you your boss, your kids, your spouse, the news, whatever Donald Trump said, that stuff is going to eat up your day unless you carve out the time for you to live out your values. And that means the cost of all these amazing technologies these days is that we gotta do a little bit of extra work. We have to plan our day down to the minute. And this is a trait when I was interviewing this book over the past five years that it took me to do the research for this book. One group of people did this consistently. 
like to many people, it's a surprise. Oh my God, you want me to plan out every minute of my day? No, I need time for spontaneity. I can't be so rigid. But let me tell you, every C-level executive I talked to did this already. Without exception, they carried around a piece of paper with their entire day planned down to the minute. Now, does that mean that you never fall off track? No. Does it mean you never get distracted? No. It means that for the first time in your life, you will understand when you got distracted and you can do something about it. So in my life, like an idiot, every day I would do the same thing and get distracted by the same things. And I'd have this long to-do list with all these things I wanted to accomplish, and then I'd wonder, well, why didn't I get everything done? Well, because I didn't put the time on my calendar to do those things. So you can't call something a distraction unless you know what you got distracted from. It has to be on your calendar or it's not gonna happen. Schedule your priorities. Schedule your entire day, yeah. everything in your day. Now, what, what I want people to do is to create this template, and I, actually I'll give you a link for the show notes where I built this free tool because I kept getting asked, well, what's the best way to do it? And you can do it with, uh, with the uh, Google Calendar. There are some tools you can use, but they're kind of overbuilt. So I actually built my own tool for free. You don't even have to give me an email, nothing. You can just use it, uh, and I'll give you the link to the show notes to create the ideal weekly template that has everything that's important to you on it. Time for yourself, right? For your physical, for your emotional health. Time for your friends, time for your family, time for the different things at work that require your attention. All of these things should be on your calendar and you need to synchronize your calendar with the stakeholders in your life. Uh, and so where this had the most impact for me was my relationship with my wife. I mean, I'll, I'll be very vulnerable with you and admit that I was taking advantage of her. As most men in America do when it comes to heterosexual relationships, we know that men uh, shortchange women when it comes to household responsibilities. And uh, when it comes to you know household admin, this kind of stuff, we, we really don't do our share. Across the board, we see surveys that show this. And I was guilty of this as well. And so one thing we started doing was to simply synchronize our calendar. We would have these fights constantly that I wasn't doing enough, that I wasn't doing my share of the household responsibilities. And I didn't understand what she was talking about. I would say, like, look, if you want me to do something, just tell me to do it. But what I didn't realize is that her telling me to do something was itself work. <laughs> So we sat down, we, we listed all the things that take time that need to get done, and we simply carved out time for it. So on my calendar, it says, Saturday is my time to make dinner for the week. So we, we like prepare our meals in advance so that when dinner time comes, we just pop stuff in the oven. So now I know exactly what to do. So now she doesn't have to get mad at me. I know exactly what my responsibilities are because they are in my calendar. They're in your calendar. I mean, and I, I couldn't... Um agree with you more. I think the, the idea of saying you have a distraction without actually showing it in your calendar really is a way out. And I don't know if you're saying that we as humans are lazy, but I know that you're saying that we can do so much more. And that's where your personal responsibility comes from. That the idea of us having so many things competing for our attention is actually something that we can hack if we become more intentional. Yeah, yeah, I think it really is about understanding these these new techniques. And I and I don't, you know, I I want to make sure that uh, that I'm very clear. I am pretty lazy. <laughs> no, first of all, I do agree with that concept. By the way, I do think a lot of I think the brain is is very protective and wants the easier way for you, which speaks to your point for pain management. And I think a lot of humans, definitely most of us, will choose the easier way out. So it's not a that's not a knock on us. No, no, no. It's more, yeah, it's more I about. Think, I think some folks yeah. think, oh, you wrote a book about distraction and you're telling people how to stay focused. You must be. You must have a lot of self discipline. You must have a lot of self control. It's actually the exact opposite. Right. It's because exactly. I don't have a lot of self control, that I need these techniques. 
So it's no. it's really about understanding uh, how to use these techniques so that you don't have to struggle with yourself every day, that you can use these techniques to keep you in line to do what it is you really want to do without uh, a big struggle and self-control and self-discipline. Absolutely. And and something that I'm always uh, interested in you with your work, because you, you're, you know, you're pretty known for talking about how to make and break habits. And some of these things here you're talking about are habits. They're going to be very, very, um, I guess, graining for some people initially because it, it's just not what people are used to. Just mm -hmm. the idea of starting like that and then making it consistent. So right. in your experience, we've had the, you know, 21 days to, to keep a habit. But what is your what does your experience tell you from everyone you've studied, from all the books you've written and all the classes you've taught? What is the best way to make sure that habit stays consistent? Because so far we've talked about how to identify it, but how do we then keep it consistent? Yeah, so uh, here's the number one problem with habits. That people don't understand what they really are. <laughs> and, <laughs> and most people, when they say they want something to become a habit, that is code for I want something to be effortless and easy. I want to get in the habit of writing. I want to get into the exercise habit. Why? Because I would love to have written a book. I would love to have a, a, a good looking body. That's a pitfall and it gets a lot of people. I got news for you. Those things are not habits. Why? Because what's the definition of a habit? The definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. But let me tell you, I've written two books. If I wrote a book with little or no conscious thought, it'd be garbage. If I went to the gym and lifted weights with, no, with little or no conscious thought, I'd hurt myself. That's not how you get better at something. You get better at something when you give it lots of conscious thought. So people need to understand what a habit is. A habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. It's learning to drive and then being able to talk to your buddy while you're driving. You know, when you're, when you're 16 or 18 getting your license, it takes a lot of conscious thought to learn how to drive, but then eventually it's just something you can do and you can listen to a podcast or you can talk to a friend and it doesn't require a whole lot of thought because a lot of those learned behaviors are on autopilot, they're on habit. But that's not the way to write a book. That's not the way to, to, to get better in the gym. Now, some behaviors can become habits. Like you can certainly zone out while you run, for example. There are some things, some physical activities, some forms of exercise that you can zone out. But if you can't zone out, it ain't a habit. It's not something done with little or no conscious thought. So what is it? It's a routine. A routine is simply a series of behaviors. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Just frequently repeated. So you say, okay, well, big deal, Nier. Like you call it a habit, I call it a routine, big deal, like wh- whatever. Actually, this really, really matters. And the reason it matters is because when people call something a habit, when it's not a habit, here's what happens. They wake up one day and they say, hey, it's been 60 days, right? I've read somewhere on the internet that you need to do a behavior for 60 days, which by the way is rubbish. That's, study, that's not true. There's never been a study that shows that there's some magic number like 60 days. It's an average, it's not a magic number. And I've been writing for 60 days and it's still really hard. Or I've been, you know, I've been going to the gym and it's still really hard. I must be doing something wrong. Or I must be deficient. I must have a short attention span. There's something wrong with me. And they quit because they thought it would be easy and now it's not. And that's why this is so toxic. That habits, when we call something a habit, when it has no hope of becoming a habit, We're tricking ourselves and we're likely to fail and fail hard. As opposed to if we acknowledge that certain behaviors will never be habits and will always stay routines, well now there's no expectation of them ever becoming effortless. That we should expect some behaviors to require constant effort and pain and discomfort. And instead of expecting things to be effortless and easy, we should learn to cope with that discomfort in a healthier manner so that we can stick with those routines. So the number one tip I would give you is to not, is to know the difference between habits and routines. And while some habits, I'm sorry, while some routines can become habits, not all habits, sorry, let me say that again. While some routines can become habits, not all routines can become habits. And so we need to tell the difference between the two. And for those behaviors that will always stay routines and will never become habits, we need to learn that, that the discomfort, the, the pain is part of the journey and learn techniques to cope with that discomfort in a healthier manner. Wow. No, I love that. I love that distinction. And uh, we're talking to Nir here who has described being indistractable as essentially the skill of the century just because of everything that we have going on. There, there, there's something else that I, I discovered in, in your research. You say, and re- my research rather, you say that uh, high levels of distraction at a company are usually symptoms of a bigger problem. What do you mean by that? That Say that one more time. You, you broke up there. Sorry. You, you say that high levels of distraction at a company are usually oh. symptoms of a bigger problem. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to mastering internal triggers, these uncomfortable sensations that we seek to escape from that drive us to either traction or distraction, we know that there are only two things that you can really do about it. You can either change the source of the problem or you can learn tactics to cope with that discomfort. Okay, so we, there, there are many, and I tell you how to do both in the book, uh, but when it comes to, let, let, so the, the, the techniques to cope with the discomfort, there are several ways that we can, there's several things we can do for things we can't change, but I wanna emphasize, we only use those techniques when we really truly can't change the problem. I think that you know, recently we've kind of gone off the deep end with uh, these pain relievers 
that are effective, that are good tools. Uh, I hear this manifested a lot when it comes to meditation and mindfulness, that this cures everything. And we've gone way overboard. Meditation and mindfulness is great when you can't change the source of discomfort. And so I only mention meditation and mindfulness once in my book to tell you I will not talk about it for the rest of the book. <laughs> not that the techniques don't work, but they've been addressed ad nauseum and they don't work on everything. Because look, frankly, if you can fix the source of your pain, that should be the first step. Get, off, off, get up off your butt, stop meditating, fix the problem that's causing you pain in your life. So what is the pain in, a, in most people's lives? Where is this discomfort coming from? Part of it is just being a human being and we need to learn to adjust to that discomfort in a more healthy manner. But we also need to identify these sources of discomfort that we actually can do something about. So one of the, 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 the key sources of the internal triggers that drive us to distraction comes from the workplace. That it turns out that there is a, a confluence of two factors that cause, not just are correlated, but actually cause depression and anxiety disorder. And the confluence of these two factors are the following. Workplace environments with high expectations coupled with low control. That these type of workplaces literally drive us crazy. They lead to depression and anxiety disorder. And so that, it turns out, is the underlying cause because when you add technology to a, a dysfunctional company culture, the company uses the technology to bring out the worst aspects of the company culture, right? It's called the cycle of responsiveness where the technology perpetuates this crappy cycle because what do people do when they feel bad, right? We've just established how uh, uh, discomfort is, is spurs, is this, spurs us to all sorts of behaviors. All our behaviors are a desire to escape discomfort. So what do people do when they feel uh, stress, anxiety, uncertainty, fatigue uh, in the workplace? Well, they, they grasp for control. And how do they do that? They send emails that they never need to, needed to send. They uh, clog up group chat channels. They call meetings that are pointless because they are grasping for control. And so they are using technology to perpetuate the worst of their company culture. It's not the technology that's doing it. It's the technology in the hands of a crappy workplace culture. Right. And in fact, some of the evidence for this, by the way, everything in my book, these are not anecdotes. These are all peer-reviewed studies that I put in the book. This is, I hate those self-help books that says, oh, I took a cold shower and made me feel great, so you should do it too. No, no, no. Everything in the book is about, uh, it, you know, draws from peer-reviewed journals. So... One of, the, one of the things that surprised me most is, you know, you think if technology is the problem, if technology is causing us distraction, then you would imagine that the companies that use the most technology should be the most distracted. For example, take Slack. Slack is the world's largest group chat app, right? Lots of people use Slack. And I, I heard when I was researching my book, uh, many people said, you know, Slack is a huge distraction for them. I said, oh, that, that, that's really interesting. So if Slack is the source of the problem, if that's the real cause, then let's see, the people who use Slack most should be the most distracted. So who uses Slack more than anybody? The people who work at Slack, right? So they should be the most distracted people on earth. But that's not the case. Because if you go to Slack headquarters, you will find that six o'clock, the office is empty. Nights and weekends, nobody's on Slack. Nobody sends emails on nights and weekends. Well, why is that? Because Slack, is an example of a company that has a healthy company culture and, and they do three things. Number one, they give employees psychological safety. Psychological safety is the ability 
to raise concerns without fear of retribution. So you can raise your hand and say, hey boss, this something's not working out here. I need to talk to you about it. Can we fix it? Can we do something about it? Why is that so important? Because it gives employees a sense of agency and control. Remember we talked about high expectation, low control. So giving employees psychological safety gives them more control. The second aspect is that they give employees a forum to talk about these problems, right? So in fact, they use Slack to give employees a place to voice concerns. They have these Slack channels. One of them is called Beef Tweets, where they literally people just complain about the company, right? They, they, they air their beef about the company. And so it turns out that, that management will actually check that channel quite regularly. They use, the, they use emojis, believe it or not. They use the eyes emoji to tell employees, yep, I saw that comment. We're going to do something about it. And that gives employees a greater sense of agency and control. So I'm not tell, saying, hey, everybody needs to use Slack channels to do this. Any way you can do it. The point is give employees psychological safety, give them a form. And then the third aspect, which is incredibly important, is that the company leadership has to demonstrate what it means to be indistractable. So, you know, culture flows downhill. And so when, when employees see that management is constantly checking their devices, it's constantly on, uh, they do the same. And so if you go to Slack headquarters, when you walk in, you will see this huge pink sign that's written on the company wall. It says, work hard and go home. It literally says that on the company walls, okay? Because everybody in the company from Stuart Butterfield on down, the CEO on down, believes in exemplifying what it means to turn off, what it means to be indistractable. So it's those three tenets. It's a company that has, gives employees psychological safety, a forum to air concerns, and where management displays what it means to be indistractable. That is the solution. It's not the technology causing this stuff, it's crappy workplace culture. Absolutely. And, and so I run full disclosure, I run a diversity and inclusion firm. So my job is essentially to fix or help work on workplace dysfunction, which you've defined as the actual um, bigger problem at place here. And it's interesting hearing what you say, because it, it is a lot of times companies and individuals not living out their values, people not being intentional with what they say. Essentially, people not doing what they said they will do, whether it's upon orientation or whether they, or when they launch the company. And I find that the further the separation from you saying you're going to do something and you actually doing it, the more um, untrustworthy you look, and then the the less trust uh, that there exists as foundation, the less communication exists. And when there's no communication and trust, we start to fill our brains with several stories, and they're often not positive. And so yeah. it's, very, it's this cycle that, that happens um, and everything that becomes a trigger and people become the worst versions of themselves. That's so, right. Unfortunately, yeah. that's right. Right. Yeah. Right. And, that, and that's why personal integrity is so important. You know, if you ask most people, uh, you know, is it important to keep your promises to others? Oh, absolutely. Right. I would never lie to my colleagues, to my family, to my kids. I would never lie to those people. But yet we lie to ourselves all the time. Yeah. We say we're work out, we don't. We say we're going to make time to read, we don't. We say we're going to work on that big project, we don't. We check email or do some other stupid task that we didn't yeah. plan to do. So personal integrity has to come first. And it's hard. I'm not saying this stuff is easy. Oh no, but of it's course, absolutely yeah. doable. And we don't think we don't think it's a big deal too, because we always say, ah, oh, you know, I'll just do it next time. I'll do it next week. I'll do it another time. I'll do it six months from now. And we don't understand that as we're doing all those things, postponing our responsibilities, our priorities, our 
essential uh, productive uh, habits, what we're doing is we're just unconsciously passing that on to our environment. And then it becomes this culture. It actually becomes defined as culture. That's right. And, yeah. And then when it becomes defined as culture, it, you know, someone like you can say what you're saying and you become a pariah. You'd be like, this guy, <laughs> this guy doesn't get it. Come on. This is the culture. <laughs> yeah. No, that's absolutely right. That's right. You become a, a den of thieves. Yeah. That This is how everybody does it here. So, you know, you're either in or you're out. Exactly. Exactly. And I've seen this happen so many times. Um, a diversity lens and an inclusion lens where, you know, especially when it comes to inclusion, we're like, we don't do that. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting. But something else about you, you are not just a writer, right? Uh, you're also a tech investor. And you, your mm -hmm. tech background is so interesting to me because you've invested in companies such as Eventbrite, Product Hunt, Anchor.fm, but you also have a background in solar power advertising and gaming yeah. industries. Yeah, you now, this, did your digging. This is awesome. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, mean, I do my job. You know, personal responsibility <laughs> you sure do. is important I'm to impressed. me. <laughs> but the reason why I'm bringing this uh, up is because you're someone that strikes me as someone that studies human behaviors and psychological, uh, you know, behaviors as well. I want to make this assertion that all these things that you studied played a role into your investment choices and how you became successful in tech as well, because. I think there are transferable skills. Would you say that's true or not? Absolutely. So particularly with with Hooked, uh, you know, that became my investment thesis. That I, my competitive advantage was that I understood engagement. I think better than many people out there. So if a company relies upon habits, relies mm -hmm. upon unprompted user engagement, then I'm your guy. You know, I, I intentionally stuck to my knitting when it comes to investing. There's lots of industries I won't invest in. I don't know anything about crypto. I don't know anything about um, medical devices. I don't know, like pharmaceuticals, like not my areas of expertise. But man, if it's a product like a, you know, a SaaS service or a consumer web product that requires people to engage continuously uh, and habitually, that's my area of expertise. Because I can see, I can run their model through the hook model and understand, does it, does it, uh, does it show the attributes, the four key attributes of a company that can be habit forming. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for anyone thinking what SaaS is, SaaS is software as a service. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, basically that's where I started off. And, um, before I branched out into what I'm doing here, yeah. uh, but, but you mentioned the hook model. Um, I, I've, I've seen that you said in the past that a hook model and the Bible are related in some way. Or <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> sure are. So the, uh, the uh, only case study in the book, in Hooked, is of the Bible app. It's not what most people think about. Most people think, <laughs> oh, you know, you must have profiled Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I do draw small lessons from those companies because they do some stuff really, really well that's worth highlighting. But in terms of, of a case study that shows the entire Hooked model in action, uh, that is such a great app to show <laughs> is the, the Bible app is, is, is really terrific because it shows a few things. One, you know, Bobby Greenwald just did a fantastic job. You know, the Bible app, people don't talk about it that much in the media, but it's one of the most popular apps in the world. It's hundreds of millions of people who use this, probably maybe billions at this point. I wrote the book five years ago and they already had, you know, several hundred million users. It could be billions at this point. Right. Uh, but second, I think it, it really 
I, I use that app very intentionally because it raises some some interesting ethical questions in folks' minds. Because if you're the kind of person, well, first of all, let me tell you a funny story real quick. So uh, <laughs> one of the stories that, that Bobby told me was that uh, he actually got a, a, an email from one of his users that said, hey, I just want to tell you that I was walking into a, a, a strip club and the Bible app sent me a notification, right? What we call an external trigger. And <laughs> that's when I knew that God was trying to tell me something and I walked right out of that strip club. <laughs> so, you know, how you feel about the Bible app tells me a lot about how you feel about social media and all of these apps that people think are, you know, uh, melting our brains. Uh, I think that's a specious assumption. But, you know, if you think that the Bible app is a good thing in people's lives, that it's helping people find meaning and connection and helping them live out their values, well, then you think the Bible app is wonderful and you're happy that it's using habit-forming techniques. But if you think that the Bible app is pulling people apart and that it uh, causes divisiveness based on ideological reasons, well, then you don't like habit-forming products. And so, you know, the answer here is that this stuff is complex, right? Do some people benefit from the Bible? Sure. Do some people become fanatic freaks and, and hurt people in the name of God? Yeah, sure. Is social media, does social media have some bad aspects? Of course. Does it have some good aspects? Of course. The answer to every complex question is, well, it depends. Yeah. And so that's really why I wanted that app as, as the seminal example of using the hook model. No, I love it. And uh, the, that it depends answer is something that we are not used to as a world. I, I say often that we are a nuanced world governed by binary systems. And so oh, that's, that's a great line. I like that a lot. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. But it applies to everything. You know, people like to put things in boxes. And if you can't define it, we become uncomfortable. You know, you talked about the brain, talk about this distraction and action. We like to just figure, th put things into boxes. And the idea of personal responsibility means you can fail. Uh, means you can fall down. It means you don't know what's going to happen, but it still means you have to get back up and do it again. And so we need to have a better relationship with nuance. Um, I, I, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. So I want to ask one more question before we go into the book, uh, before we go into how to find the book. Um, this idea of hacking back your time, right? Preventing this rechecking of emails and sending fewer emails. I'm very interested in your theory with that because I run a business, you run several businesses. Emails for something is, uh, emails for me are, are things that I just habitually check. I'd just be going back and refreshing, yeah. refreshing. So it's something I need to work on. But what is the best way to, I guess, prevent that habitual rechecking of emails? Yeah. So th this is this is uh, was a real surprise to me uh, wh when I did the research for the book that you know email is probably the mother of habit forming technology, <laughs> and it wastes so much time. The Harvard Business Review found that 25% of the emails you receive as a knowledge worker did not you did not need to get. And 25% of the emails that the average knowledge worker sends, they didn't need to send. So it is a huge, huge time waster. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is, I didn't appreciate where the time is actually wasted. The majority of the time we spend wasted on email is not actually the replying and the checking, it's actually the re-checking. Because what most of us do, myself included, before I learned this technique that I'm about to share with you that people have told me reduce their time spent on email by something like 90%, 90%, wow. is that the, the time wasted on email is, goes something like this. So you open an email, you say, okay, you read it, and then you, you, know, you put it away, and you'll come back to it later, and then you check another email, another email, and then maybe like 30 minutes later when you're bored or you need something to do, 
you check it again and you read the same email maybe two, three, four, five, six times. And so it's that's the pernicious part. That's where we waste time on email. So here's the solution. Every email from this day forth, you only touch twice. Once to check it and once to answer it. No more. And so every time you open an email, here's what you have to do with it. You have three choices of what to do with that email before you close it, okay? You can either delete or archive it. So if it's junk, just delete or archive it. That's option one. Option two is to label that email with an email that says today. Option three is to label that email with a label that says this week. And so what you're doing now is making it explicit the most important part of email, of receiving an email from a time management perspective. You're making it very quick and easy to understand when each and every email needs a reply. That is the most, that's the most important piece of information you need when you check that email the first time before you put it back, before you put it away. Then you've made time for traction. You have time in your calendar to check email. So every day in my calendar, I have an hour and a half of only checking the emails that require a response today, the urgent emails. Then I have every Monday, I call it Message Mondays, I have a three-hour slot for going through all those messages that can wait a week. And this has a few benefits. One, you stop the constant rechecking that we know wastes a ton of time. And two, what you tend to find is when you let emails just kind of wait for a while, as opposed to this ping pong game that we all play with each other of constantly feeling like every time we get an email, we have to return it because we want to clean out our inbox as quickly as possible. And what we don't realize, of course, is that if you want to get less email, guess what? You have to send less email. So instead of playing that constant ping pong game, what you do by giving it a little time to marinate in your inbox, many of those emails will become irrelevant. Uh -huh. They'll just be squashed under the weight of something more pressing. And they didn't actually need a reply at all. So that's what we got to do. That's going to save you a tremendous amount of time is only check each email twice. The first time you label it by when it needs a reply, you have time in your calendar to provide that reply and you adjust that according week to week based on how much email you get. Uh, and then, and then you're making extra time for those emails that can wait for the end of the week. That's brilliant. I love it. I love it so much. And even to add to that, when I wake up, I notice the first thing I do is to go through my emails and it's a lot of deleting. And what that tells me is that I'm subscribed to things that I'm not, they're not useful to me. And the idea that I wouldn't unsubscribe from them as opposed to deleting them on a, on a daily basis, is just letting me know that I'm probably wasting more of my time. <laughs> right. No, that's, that's, that's for sure. So that's, yeah, that's another step I talk about in the book that, Hey, if you, if you can, uh, you, you should definitely unsubscribe relentlessly, right? So that yeah. you don't uh, receive it. There's actually a tool I, I recommend uh, called Sane Later. Uh, you know, many people, even after you unsubscribe, uh, they keep sending you these stupid messages, uh, you know, clogging your inbox with spam. And so there's a tool that I highly recommend called Sane Later, and it has a function called Sane Black Hole. And anything you label with Sane Black Hole, you'll never, ever, ever see again. They just won't be able to, you won't, you won't even get to your spam folder. <laughs> it's it's great. That's awesome. So, well, well, how can we find your book, Indistractable, How to Be Industry. I mean, I guess how to control your attention and choose your life. Where do we find? Yeah. That? So, uh, in the, so my website is nearandfar.com. It's spelled like my first name. My first name is N I R. So it's N I R and far.com. Oh, near far. Like that pun. 
It's a nice pun. Yeah, you like that? Yeah. <laughs> I got made fun of uh, growing up, and so that's I kept it. I, I used it. <laughs> um, so yeah, nearandfar.com is my website. And Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life is available wherever books are sold. And make sure that you check out indistractable.com. I have free videos, resources, a schedule maker tool that I mentioned earlier. Uh, all of these tools, um, you know, they're free. You can, you can get them whether you buy the book or not. Uh, and there's an 80-page workbook there as well that I couldn't fit in the book, but is super, super helpful that you can get as well. And all that is available at indistractable.com. That's I-N, the word distract. A-B-L-E, so indistractable. Definitely. We'll, I'll make sure I put all this in the show notes. Once again, the book is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir, before we head out, my last question is my mission statement reframed as a question. I say use your difference to make a difference. So how do you, Nir, use your difference to make a difference? That's a good one. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> give me a second there. How do I use my difference to make a difference? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, there's a quote by William James where he says, the art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. And that, I, I think it's a really profound quote, that the art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. And I think this is how I wanna be different. I wanna be different by not being the person who feels like they have to do everything and know everything and consume every source of media and every tweet and everything on YouTube. No, I, I don't want everything. That, in fact, wisdom is about what, knowing what to not do, knowing what to overlook. And that's a key part of becoming indistractable, is knowing the importance of focus, knowing the importance of living with personal integrity, knowing the importance of doing whatever it is that you say you're going to do with your time and your life. Well, I love it. I just want to thank you for coming on the show. I think, I think if anything, the audience is going to be challenged to look within themselves and see where they can improve. Uh, so thank you for just reminding us of our personal responsibility. We can often control more than we pretend to do, uh, pretend to say we can. So thank you so much. My pleasure. You, you said it perfectly. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, uh, ladies and gentlemen and gender nonconformers, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 